No. What did he say? He's going to destroy the world. It'll not be averted. Man corrupted this world and filled it with violence. So we must be destroyed. commandment is this love one another just as I love you the greatest love you can have for your friends is to give your life for them and you are my friends if you do what I command you I do not call you servants any longer because servants do not know what their master is doing instead I call you friends because I have told you everything I heard from my father you did not choose me I chose you and so the Father will give you whatever you ask of him in my name. This, then, is what I command you. Love one another. False gods. And today, we are going to talk about a very famous false god. His name is the god of guilt. And uh, there are two types of guilts. And we're going, as we will see, there are two types of guilts. And uh, there are a lot of contributing factors that shape our minds in regards to guilt. So it's complicated. As you've seen in that little uh, video, one of the major factors that contribute to us building guilt is our view of God. So today we're going to tackle three points, three major points. The first is the image of God in my mind, the image, my image in God's mind, and then my image in my mind. So again, the image of God in my mind, my image in God's mind, and my image in my mind. And I must make a public confession now. So many of you are known as a theologian. And one of my vows as a theologian is to never accept to talk about a topic that I have not myself experienced. So... I must confess, I struggle and have been struggling with guilt for the past 10 years. And by the grace of God, I'm able to fix the first point, the image of God in my mind, and the second point, the image, my image in God's mind. And I'm still struggling with the third one, which is my image in my mind. And so as we go through this, it will become evident that there is quite a bit of effort that we need to put if we're struggling with guilt. But by the grace of God, everything, uh, he gave us the power to, um, to succeed. So first, what image of God is in my mind? Having been raised myself, as I'm sure many of you, regardless of the context, but at least having been raised in a Middle Eastern culture, a lot of factors have contributed to the formation of God's image in my mind. It was definitely fear-based. And as someone who fears, the first thing I started fearing is the fear of death. And why did I fear death? It's because in my mind, I, I always thought, okay, God, who's in heaven, is eagerly waiting for me to go home so he can give me a good beating. He can't wait, waiting with a big stick, to beat the heck out of me for being a bad person. And I've struggled with this for so long, 
until I started build, building my theological formation and learning more and growing more. And so, as Roligan children, sons and daughters, what do we think our father is saying? Is he saying, I'm eagerly waiting for you to get back home for a good meeting? Or what he says about himself, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who's dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A lot of times we, and as we will see even deeper, we confuse what God is saying about himself with what we think he is saying about himself. And we have to disentangle these from each other. We must let Christ himself dictate his image in our minds. He's not left for interpretation. He speaks on his own behalf. He is a being who is capable of self-revealing. He's always self-revealing. He's always telling us who he is. And so there is no space for us to say or to tell him who he is. So uh, let us examine this further. Listen to what he says to his disciples when they were walking with him one day. And the people in Judea did not receive him well. What did the disciples say in Luke 9? They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Well, he rebuked them. He said, you do not know from what spirit you are. Because they distorted his image in their minds and by virtue in the minds of those they would preach to. And he said, no, no, wait, this is not who I am. This is not how I deal. I am a God of love. If Christ came to revenge the sins, he would not have been crucified. He would have snapped his fingers and everyone died because he was very offended, right? So, as a matter of fact, you know how in the Old Testament God said, I am who I am, but what we have to know is this great I am has no ego. And that's the fascinating thing about God. This great I am has no ego. He has no ego that is to be robbed or to be insulted. He is so simple. He's a simple spirit. He is so humble to the point that he's incarnate, to the point that he's crucified, to the point that he lets himself be slapped and spat on and does not return it. He has no ego. He is not to be deprived of his majesty just, just because he is humble. So the great I am has no ego. And let us see how from the Old Testament he expresses himself to us. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and I believe that I came from God. The second point that we're going to discuss is my perception about my image in God's mind. In other words, what do you think God is saying about you? There is no hope in this person. They have sinned. That, you know, I'm 37 years old. Okay, for 37 years he has been sinning. There's no hope in this guy. Um, what an ugly creature. What an ugly creature. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. This is what he's saying. I have swept away your offense like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is what he's saying. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yes, we are sinners. But he loves us. The amazing fact is God always sees us as a new creation. At every moment of our life, he sees us as a new creation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The job title of God is what? His creator. Is his act of creation a historical act? Well, no. It's an ongoing act. Every time we stand up and pray the psalm, we say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right? So, what is it? He is always creating. And we have to correspond to this creation, to, to this, let, there, let, let me, or let us make man in our image and likeness. Every time we go back and confess our sins, we are becoming a new creation in Christ. So every time we are a new creation, we are going to him, we're saying, Lord, yes, we are sinners. And he says, yes, you are all sinners, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. Therefore, <clears throat> there are two takeaways from being a new creation. And this is very important for our spiritual life. First, I have to differentiate between what God promises and my belief about His promise. So He promised that you are a new creation. This is his promise. Is God a little kid who goes back on his promises? No. He's the great God who orders and things are created. And therefore, if he says you are a new creation, this is a true statement regardless of what I believe about it. So I might have a different idea about his promise. I might think this is fake. I might not believe it. But it is true just because he said it. If he says it's new creation, then it's new creation. So we have to differentiate between what he promises and what we think about his promise. We cannot project what we think about his promise as his true promise. Does that make sense? Yes? So I cannot confuse what I think about his promise and confuse it for what he promises. The second thing is a lot who deal with secular psychology will tell you that, and this is majorly in purely secular psychology, maybe not so much in Christian psychology, but secular psychology will look at you as an addict. So if, you have, if you're struggling with a certain sin, they will teach you how to find ways to you know, cope with it or whatever that might be, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not going to speak on their behalf. But what we have to trust is we are a new creation. What does that mean? Let's say you're lying. And you go and run to your father of confession, and you say, Father, you know, you're confessing to God, Father, I've sinned against you, I am lying. And you, you offered repentance. And the priest read the absolution. You have become a new creation. So let's say after one week, you lie again. Are you addicted to lying? No. As a matter of fact, because you are a new creation, when you lie again, this is the first time you ever lied as a new creation. This is the first time you committed lying, ever. And if you start looking at yourself as a new creation, you will be able to help yourself truly. Never go back to that sin. But if, you if subconsciously you think of yourself as an addict, then you might think, there's no hope. There's no hope in me. I'm always going to be struggle with this sin until the last day of my life. No. If you look at yourself as a new creation, this is the very first time that you have committed this sin. So that takes us to the third point, which is what is my image or my perception about my image in my mind? And this is where the real issue of guilt exists. One of the major contributing factors to 
um, guilt is how we are reminded of our memories. Perhaps you uh, had to deal with your shortcomings, whatever they might be, letting people down or uh, falling into sexual sin or having an abortion or unfaithfulness in marriage or abusing your children or lying to your best friend or whatever it is, um, ruining someone's career, giving a false advice that ruins someone's life. Whatever, the, the, the list is endless. It doesn't matter what you have done. What matters is we might discern, we must discern between uh, a few concepts. So, first of all, there is guilt and there is pseudo guilt. There is guilt and there is pseudo guilt. And we'll come to discuss pseudo guilt um, at depth in a second. But what is guilt? Guilt is an awareness of having violated an objective standard. So there is an objective standard. Let's say it's wrong to lie. Having violated that objective standard is guilt. So no lying. Well, I've lied. That means I violated this objective standard and I have guilt. But we then must ask ourselves a very important question. Is the standard true or false? Because sometimes we think the standard is a true standard while it's a false standard. Let me give you an example. So I think a true standard is lying. We know lying is wrong. So that's an objective standard. But let's say we're, you're walking down the, the aisle in the, at church and you failed to see someone, so you failed to say hello. And then that person comes to you and says, you've seen me, and you did not say hello. And you start feeling guilty, because you did not say hello. Well, wait a second. You didn't see him. It was not like you actually avoided saying hello. So sometimes we will put a false standard and feel guilty about it. But it's not an objective standard. And that is unchristian. That is not from God. That's from the devil, as we will see. Then, we will also define shame. And shame is an awareness of having failed in someone's eyes. Again, it's an awareness of having failed in someone's eyes. Whomever that is, in God's eyes, in my friend's eyes, in my parents' eyes, in my colleagues' eyes, or in my eyes, I feel shameful. And the difference is guilt is I lied. Shame, I have identified myself with the guilt. So now my self-identity became I am a liar. It's not about one act of lying. It's about now it became my self-identity. So I am shameful because I have defined myself as a liar. But again, remember the new creation. You cannot reduce the totality of who you are into an act or into one thing because... You are always being renewed. Um, and also in shame, there is true and false. Did you think, did you think it or did someone say it? So are you saying that, okay, I, it's an awareness of having failed in someone's eye. Did they actually express that to you? Or are you projecting that on them? Right? So, guilt can definitely be overcome by confession. Shame can be gone by relationship with God. Because the more time you spend with God and truly learn about how He looks at you, 
you will have a better idea of who you are in your own mind. So to know my image in his eyes, I have to differentiate between is it the real image or is it the perceived image? Now, if I have real guilt, if I truly violated an objective standard, then I really need to repent. I need to confess. I need to receive God's forgiveness. But as a new creation, I also need to forgive myself. Let us see what scripture says about this. In Luke chapter 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Well, that also includes yourself. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. We must be very clear that once we judge ourselves, we are replacing God in our own life. God is the only judge. You're not exempt because you are you from judging yourself. You know, like God is the judge. You cannot replace God and put yourself and then say, well, it's exempt just because it's me. No, you are included in this. You cannot judge yourself. You have to develop a, a spirit of discernment, but you cannot judge yourself. Let's see what St. Paul says in uh, Philippians 3. It, it's, it's amazing how he speaks about this because he basically says, persecuting the church, Paul, as Saul in his old Jewish life, he went and persecuted the church. He was killing Christians. He was killing Christians. He went around. He even guarded the garments of Stephen, the, the first deacon. Until they, you know, they, they, he guarded their garments until they killed him. He was an atrocious human being. Yet, in the same verse, just a few lines down, he says, Forgetting what is behind and uh, straining forward toward what is ahead. So it's amazing, like he's just mentioning the whole, his whole history as a Jewish man in one sentence saying, persecuting the church, but now, okay, forgetting everything and moving forward. This is the attitude that we need to have as new creation in Christ. That's why we have two types of sorrow. There is godly sorrow versus ungodly sorrow. Let's read what he says about it. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not ashamed, were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So, godly sorrow respond, corresponds to guilt, real guilt, guilt that is from God. Ungodly sorrow corresponds to pseudo guilt or guilt that comes from Satan. Pseudo guilt. Pseudo means a lie, untrue. So, it's an untrue guilt. It's a lie. Real guilt comes from God. We must identify it. We must develop a spirit of discernment that can distinguish between real guilt and pseudo-guilt. Reject pseudo-guilt because it's from Satan. A great example is the guilt, the type of guilt that Peter had and Judas had. Peter had guilt. He repented. And he lived to witness the salvation of God in his life. Judas had guilt, but then had pseudo-guilt. Why? Because earlier, as in the Gospel of John, it says that Satan entered him. It's from Satan. And therefore, what happened? He killed himself. There was no hope. There was no hope for him. So... Pseudo-guilt, however, 
comes from what we call the twin sins. We have twin sins that kind of play with us as a soccer ball from one end of the court to the other. All the days of our life. These are self-righteousness and self-pity. Self-righteousness and self-pity. I am sure we all have seen those and we're very familiar with them. I for sure have struggled with these and I still am struggling with these. Self-pity and self-righteousness. Well, what is self-righteousness? It's feeling inherently good. I was created, my parents used to say, I'm sorry, my parents, if you hear this, but they used to say, our son will never, you know, he's the best son ever. He's a saint. He will never do these things. No, 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 it's impossible. So you start developing an idea about yourself that you are above sin, that you can never sin. Uh, that is, you, you are above any uh, admonition. Um, you're just detached from whatever. You will find some way to justify whatever you're doing. You start developing relativistic boundaries. And this creates self-righteousness. And self-righteousness um, people who are struck with this, they're struck with they're quick to judge and they're quick to point the finger. Because in their mind, I'm above this sin, but everyone else is not. Therefore, the minute they see sin or someone committing an act, they're easy, easily going to point at them and say, he's doing this, I'm protected from this, I'm above sin. But the amazing thing is, once the scales fall from our eyes and we see our true self, we are hit with pseudo guilt. How dare I leave the angelic orders and descend to the human level and commit such an atrocious crime? It's such a disastrous feeling. And so pseudo guilt will hit you at this point when you start realizing that, no, the image that I painted about myself and that my parents painted about me is not real. I am a sinful person just like anyone else in the world. And in a sense, you're asking the question, how dare I commit such a sin? How dare I commit such a sin? It's a statement full of pride. It's a statement full of pride. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean that how dare you commit? You are a human being. You are a weak vessel. And apart from the grace of God, you're just like anyone else. Or you are the, like the dirt of the earth. So the, the, the statement itself, how dare I, is full of pride. So self-righteousness is a very dangerous thing in creating um, pseudo-guilt. Its twin sister is self-pity. Feeling sorry for yourself. Feeling sorry for yourself. Now, feeling sorry for yourself is not only selfish, but it's also full of anger toward God. You are so angry at Him. Self-pity almost demands that either God explains himself to you why he put you in such an atrocious status or that he immediately steps in to fix whatever is broken. So you're putting, you're giving him one of two choices. Either you explain to me why I have this suffering, let's say, or you step in and fix it immediately. This is self-pity. This is evident in the first uh, First Kings chapter 19 with Elijah. He is a prime example. Why? Elijah says it is better that I die. It is better that I die. Why? Why Elijah do you want to die? Well, because he thinks that he is not better than the people who came before him. He did not improve the breed. 
He's not better than them. So he does not deserve to live. He wants to die. But the question is, who put that rule? Who demanded, who required that Elijah be better than the people who were before him? He put that rule. God did not put that rule. So he fell in self-pity. And in self-pity, he had pseudo-guilt. And the result of pseudo-guilt is death, ungodly sorrow. He wanted to die. So self-pity, as with self-righteousness, it's the fruit of pseudo-guilt, where you impose guilt which God did not put there on yourself. In fact, Satan puts it there. So you can blame God of doing something unrighteous or accusing him of not stepping in and fixing it. Satan wants to reduce the quality of our soul. Just like with Job. All what he wants is curse God, accuse God. Devil, <clears throat> the devil, after all, is called the accuser. He's called the accuser. He wants you to fall in accusation of God. He wants you to stand there and say, God, you're not righteous. God, you... <clears throat> Um, you have caused this disaster in my life. And therefore, he puts pseudo-guilt in our minds and hearts. Again, I know that a lot of us have fallen in those twin sins. And I must say, <clears throat> it is only through the grace of God that one is able to focus on the real guilt, reject pseudo-guilt, and feel the freedom of God's forgiveness. So, what do we do now? What do we do with Satan? There are three rules to deal with Satan when he projects pseudo-guilt to our minds and hearts. First, we recognize, we discern that this is, is this real guilt or pseudo-guilt? And don't forget something very important as in 2 Corinthians 11.14. The devil can appear in the likeness of an angel of light. The devil can appear in the likeness of an angel of light. What does that mean? He will be like sheep in a wolf skin, right? Or a wolf in sheep skin, I'm sorry. The repercussions of a concussion. But... Uh, so he will try to paint in your mind that the pseudo-guilt that he's giving you is legitimate. To the point that he can show you something very positive out of it. But it's a trap. You have to discern. You have to discern. He can appear even in the likeness of an angel of light. And this is how you know it's from the devil. You, fool, you, you start feeling put down. You feel oppressed. There is no positive way out of the sin you've committed. When the result of the thought puts you in bondage, so if you feel suffocated, oppressed, put down, depressed, no positive way, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, you know for sure this is from the devil. Because God's voice is full of zeal. I am going to change. I'm going to run to my father of confession and offer repentance. Um, I can't wait for the next liturgy to renew my unity in Christ. This is the voice that you know this is from God. The voice of God is full of hope. One of the most astonishing facts about hell if you read in the Desert Fathers, is their description of hell that is devoid of any glimpse of hope. So you know for sure that if the result of the guilt that you have is a lack of hope, this is coming from Satan. There is no doubt about it. Because who is the Holy Spirit? He is giving you hope. He is our hope. He is our salvation. So if this is from the Holy Spirit, 
you will know what to do. But the last thing would be to feel out of hope. And finally, the voice of God is full of joy. Once you offer repentance, once you confess, once you go to your father of confession, this it's like this huge stone is lifted from your chest. Right? Like you feel freedom. Freedom. The second point is refuse. Refuse to dwell on the thoughts. Satan never plays fair. Satan will struck you with self-righteousness, self-pity, and pseudo-guilt in your most vulnerable state, just after you've committed a sin. So he will come and say, okay, this is, this is the best time for me to strike. And it is interesting how the fall of man, what was the fall of man? We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. While this is an atrocious event in human existence and in human history, it actually gave us a very important weapon. Because guess what? We possess the knowledge of good and evil. We know what is evil. In other words, we know what Satan is thinking. We know what he wants us to do. So whatever it is that we know he wants us to do, we do the opposite. Because we possess that knowledge. Let's use it against him. Let's use our fall against him. And ask for God's mercy and help. I think in that phase of refusal, one of the most important things we should do is start using the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. This is one of the most important things that we can use in this phase in our fight with Satan. The final point is resist. The book of James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5 says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Stand. Stand in front of the accusation that the devil is saying. He's saying, you are a sinner. You are worthless. There is no hope for you. And you must stand up and say, yes, the accusation is correct. However, Christ forgave me. And I am a new creation in Christ. The game plan with the devil is that when he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. When he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Because when Christ came and conquered death, what does that say about the end result for Satan? Total destruction. Everlasting fire. And the devil, just like you, has a memory. So in your fight against Satan, every time he says, remember what you did in the year, whatever, sometimes you, I'm sure many of us, I personally went through it, you wake up in the middle of the night with a certain memory. He throws a certain memory of an event and says, Look what you have done. Very simple. Oh yes, I remember that. God forgave me for that. Remember your future. Go away from me, sin. Remember your future. You have no hope. His future was sealed long ago with the blood of Christ. So there are, very quickly I'll go through 10 reasons why you should forgive yourself. It is precisely what God wants you to do. And this is where we have the most disbelief. Well, let's put it that way. If He did not want you to forgive yourself, He wouldn't have come and died for you. He believes in you. You should believe. Are you better than your master? He believes in you. You better believe in yourself too. He forgave you. You better forgive you too. Satan does not want you to forgive yourself. 
again, let us put our knowledge of good and evil to good use. We know what he thinks. Let's act against that. You will have inner peace and freedom from the bondage of guilt. And this is what 2 Corinthians says. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And an important thing to note here. The grace of God, when He comes and visits you, there are two types of grace. Or it comes in two types. There is grace given in one shot, this massive injection of grace, and there is grace that comes incrementally. And the reason there are those two types is because we're different. And God, in His healing process of the human soul, He uses what is most therapeutic to that soul. So He might think, okay, I'm going to visit one big shot or incrementally, just like a doctor would. Sometimes you go to the doctor and he will give one shot or he'll give you increments. The degree to which you forgive yourself may directly relate to your usefulness. There are so many ways that we limit ourselves in society, in family, at work, because of our feeling of pseudo-guilt. You wouldn't have to go so far except turn on the TV and watch how people get drunk and lose their jobs because they feel pseudo-guilt. Maybe a father who is backing up the car and kills his two-year-old son or daughter without noticing. But he would feel pseudo-guilt. He's not responsible. It's an accident. This is pseudo-guilt. But then he will quit his job will become useless in society because of this one memory. Forgiving yourself will help you love people more. The more you become more like Christ, forgiving yourself and forgiving others, the more you will love people. And in turn, people will like you even more when you are forgiving yourself because You'll start loving them more, and so they'll start liking you. It will enable you to fulfill all what God has in mind for you, not being paralyzed by the past. One thing we have to believe about the gifts of God towards us, as said in Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts of God are irrevocable. I know of people who have been struggling with certain sins for a very long time to the point that they start questioning their own baptism. They think, I want to be rebaptized, or I want to be re-chrismated. No, the gifts of God are irrevocable. If you have been baptized, you're baptized. No matter what you do, there is another sacrament, repentance and confession, there is communion. But the gift of God that was given in baptism is irrevocable. Unless you denounce Christ. That's a, that's a different point. And forgiving yourself will give you the freedom to be a tool in God's hand. Will give you um, freedom to see what God wants you to do in your life. He will make you a great vessel, just like he made St. Peter. <coughs> the same was done to St. Peter. Your own physical health will be at, at stake, and many studies have come out to say how feeling anger or feeling uh, irritation, whatever, affects the heart and many other physical uh, conditions. The mental and the emotional health would be at stake, you're always going to be sad or feel down. The spiritual state, of course, is at stake because you stand up every day and you pray the Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, and you say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Well, one of you, one of those people who trespasses you, 
you have not forgiven yourself. How are you asking for forgiveness? So the solution is, number one, metanoia. Change your mind. Change your mind about who God is and about who you are. You are truly a new creation. And number two, accept yourself. Accept yourself. By the grace of God, I am what I am, is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So, the checklist for a new creation, this is very important. You must not talk about your old failures. I see a lot of youth who have become servants, and when they talk to younger kids, they start showing off how bad they were in the old times. Oh, I used to do this and that. And as if you are yearning for it. As if there is a part that is not yet satisfied. So never talk about your old self. If you are truly a new creation, behold, everything is new. There is no memory of old. Don't give in to any sense of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love. In Second Timothy. Don't accept any guilt for what you have already confessed. And this is very important. Once you are sure that you have repented and confessed... Never think about it again. Never think about it. You are a new creation. Is his blood not enough? Are you doubting his capacity to save you? Hold your head high as if you had never sinned, and therefore you have nothing to be ashamed of. This is one of the most important things. Nothing will sadden you. Nothing will break you. The only time where you see people walking like this and like covering their faces is when you see them on TV being arrested. Criminals. They're like, I don't want anyone to see me. Right? Because they feel something is wrong. If we have confessed, we have nothing to worry about. We hold our head high. You know that God wants no further embarrassment to come your way. Why? Because God wants us to move forward. He doesn't want you to be stuck in embarrassment. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of human time. It's a waste of time in your spiritual path. Totally forgiving yourself is what you will have to do from now on. Respond to the Creator's invitation. He is still creating. And offer yourself as a new creature. He will not force us to be a new creature. We have to do it willfully. We have to present ourselves as new creatures. You must boldly ask God to bless you even though you know you do not deserve it. It just struck me as when I was praying the fraction today, we say that we may ask boldly without fear and entreat you, uh, your holy uh, Father who is in heaven and say our Father who art in heaven. We boldly ask him, why? Because we know that we are a new creation and that he truly forgave. And to wrap up, I just want to show you the difference in David's life when he sinned and after he was sure God forgave him. Let's read Psalm 51, just little bits of pieces. So he's now... He committed a sin and he's asking God in tears, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me, wash all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Um, and then he's asking him, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Right? Um, he has a broken spirit and a broken heart God will not despise. But let's see after he felt... The forgiveness of God. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When he then I acknowledge my sin to you, and you cover me with uh, cover up my iniquity, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He forgave the guilt, and David is sure of that. And he is talking about the interaction between, between him and God. I will instruct you and teach you the way 
you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like a horse or a mule, which have no understanding. So we have to understand God's ways. We have to understand his promises. We have to believe in them. Many are the walls of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. So God's love is truly and freely and abundantly given to us. He creates a new heart, but not only heart. He creates a new man every time we go into confession and have communion. Let us trust in the Lord with all our heart. Um, let us stand up for prayer. Our true creator, we thank you, Lord, for your everlasting love that manifests itself every day, Lord, when you are recreating our hearts and minds and souls, Lord. We ask you to give us a trusting heart and a trusting mind so that we may never look back and are never struck with the remembrance of evil, but instead given the spirit of hope that will shape our souls so that we may, may become more and more in your image and likeness. Through the intercessions of St. Mary and the prayers of St. Athanasius and St. Timothy, O Lord, make us worthy, boldly, to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, our hands and hands in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, give us our trespasses, and as we forgive those who trespass against us, give us our temptation, and give us our sin. Amen.